You may be seated. And please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20 will be our text for this morning. We're four chapters deep in our series through Mark. I hope that you're enjoying it. Hope that you're getting to know the Lord Jesus better, to grasp his gospel more clearly. This morning we'll look at a text that may be familiar to you, but I hope that by the end of the hour it has taken deeper root in your soul. Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. And he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown in the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a little while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Well, why doesn't Christianity seem to work? Why doesn't it seem to work? Why doesn't it work on people and why doesn't it work on the world? Yes, much good has come from Christianity, and if you're here today and a Christian, you would call yourself a miracle. But it's been 2,000 years and the world is an armed camp. We wouldn't say our car worked, at least without qualification, if it only worked part of the time. Why doesn't Christianity seem to work? Hold that thought, and we'll return to it a little later in the morning. When Mark opens up his chapter, we find ourselves in the middle of a great crowd, a great crowd. There are different kinds of crowds, of course. Some are big and some are small. Some crowds uh, gather, but everyone's going in different places. 
Think of a busy, a busy urban center square or a subway station. Some crowds gather and they're all there for one thing, directed at one thing, a concert or a rally. Here's how Mark describes this crowd. Again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. To this point in the book, he hasn't spent this much time just describing the crowd. He just says crowd. This crowd is getting big, really big. How did this happen? Well, when we see 2,000 people gathered outside of Walmart when it's still dark, the day after Thanksgiving, we know how that happened. How did this happen? Again, it says, he began to teach and the crowd gathered. Jesus has been gathering disciples, recruiting with pitches like this from Mark 1. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately at that call, Andrew and Simon, James and John stopped fishing and followed Jesus. They dropped their nets and they followed Jesus. James and John left their dad in the boat and followed Jesus. From there, Jesus started doing all kinds of things that would draw a crowd. He's been astonishing people with his teaching in synagogues, Mark says, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And in those same synagogues, to those same hearers who were astonished at his teaching, he amazed them, Mark says, with his healings, casting out a demon from a man. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. He healed Simon's mother-in-law's fever, and by evening the sick were all around him, brought to him, the whole city at her door. He healed diseases and cast out demons that evening. In the morning, he woke up, prayed alone, and headed out to more towns to preach to more people. And he gave us the reason. He says, for that is why I came out. Teaching and healing and casting out demons. Those gather crowds. And he kept going, doing more of the same. More provocative healings, more provocative teaching. He cleansed a leper who told everyone about it so that it wasn't long before, as Mark says, Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Who could be surprised? After taking a break for a few days, he returned to Capernaum and healed a paralyzed man but not before saying his sins were forgiven which caught the notice and got under the skin of the religious leaders who were there inspecting his work. He recruited Levi, another disciple from a crooked life, a famous sinner, and hung out at his house with all of his friends, tax collectors and sinners, which drew more attention from the religious elites who were suspicious of Jesus, to say the least. When he healed another man, the crowd heard about it. This time, Mark says, he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him and touched him. Jesus knew the science of crowds. Um, you'd figure, but it never occurred to me. There's a whole field of study on the psychology of crowds. You know, when they turn into a mob, uh, what kinds of crowds there are, how they gather, how they think, what they're going to do. There are poles that would be installed in a, a certain facility that can hold a thousand pounds of weight that after a crowd presses in on it, is bent. 
You can die in a crowd. You're more likely to die from suffocation being crushed between people, picked up, unable to move, suffocated, than you are to be trampled. I wouldn't have guessed. Well, Jesus knew the science of crowds. So that he wouldn't be crushed by the crowd, he has his disciples prepare a boat. Get the boat ready, guys. And at the end of chapter 3, Jesus went up into a mountain to appoint his 12 disciples. And then Mark says, he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he's out of his mind. Things are escalating with Jesus and his little movement and fast. Next, the scribes from Jerusalem who came to investigate insisted that he was actually doing the works of the devil. His family said he's nuts. As the title of Ryan's sermon said last week, he's impossible to ignore. So no surprise, as chapter 4 opens, Jesus expected the crowd. He made arrangements to teach from the safety of a boat. And now Jesus has something to say. In Mark's gospel, we have heard about Jesus' amazing teaching. We've heard that it astonished the hearers because of its authority. It's unlike anything they had heard. And the crowds mounting are mounting in part because of the teaching that Jesus is famous for. What will he say? This is the first time we're hearing Jesus teach on the page in Mark's gospel. What will he say? When a new CEO of a company like Apple walks on the stage, everyone wonders, what's he going to say? What is coming? A new political leader is elected into office. What is he going to say or she going to say? The crowds have come for Jesus. Everyone's on the edge of their seat. Or rather, and I'm very sorry about this, everyone is on the edge of the sea. What will this great man and teacher say to this great audience? And that's when Jesus tells them a story about farming. He tells them a story about farming. He says, in effect, listen, listen. There was this farmer and he had a bunch of seed and he was spreading it all over the place. Some fell on the path. That's the first place it fell. But it was hard and all packed down because, of course, that's where people and animals walk. It didn't go into the dirt at all. But he threw it there anyways because he was throwing it everywhere. The birds ate that seed. But there's a second place that the seed fell. Some fell on the rocky ground. There wasn't much dirt because it was filled with rocks. So when the sun came out, the plants hadn't taken very good root and the sun scorched the plants and they withered and died. They couldn't hold up under harsh conditions because of the soil had rocks. Think about that. Then some fell on a third kind of ground, thorny ground. This is point three. Now the thorny ground is interesting because the seed actually took root and sort of grew, but then the thorns strangled the seed and what it grew so that it couldn't bear fruit. Thorns. But then, listen, some fell on a fourth kind of soil, and this was good soil. Seed grew and it produced all kinds of grain, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, and some 100-fold. And with that, Jesus' teaching was over. Drop the mic. Perfect sermon from history's greatest preacher. Short, simple, clear, rich with story, and connects with real life. The only problem is who even cares? 
Who even cares about some farmer and the ground? I'm excited this spring for Alistair Begg to be with us for Clarence. He's a long-standing favorite preacher of mine. You may be familiar with him. Now imagine this room full at that theology conference this spring, and we've been singing for 20 or 25 minutes to warm our hearts up for the Word of God to be preached. We're focused. We're eager. Ryan comes up and introduces Alistair Begg, and Alistair ascends the pulpit. He greets us, and then for five minutes, he tells us about an occasion when he was fixing his car in the last week. And then he walks right off and has a seat like he's done. And that's it. There'd be two kinds of people in this room. The first kind is totally uninterested. They're done. They're uninterested in this preacher and what he has to say. The second kind of person would stay after the sermon, because apparently they have the time, to ask what on earth that was all about, because they know that he's up to something. I want to say that would be me. I hope he doesn't do that. The latter group would no doubt stay after the sermon to ask the preacher some questions, and that's exactly what actually happened in Mark 4. Mark writes in verse 10, And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. They stayed after. And this is when Jesus explains himself. That's when Jesus tells us a secret about the kingdom. He tells us a secret about the kingdom. Verse 11, he said to them, To you has been given a secret of the kingdom of God. It's not that they stayed after because they knew what Jesus was talking about. They knew that Jesus knew what he was talking about. Whatever he meant, he's right, and he's talking about the kingdom. I want him to explain this. Remember how he called his disciples, the kingdom of, his God, of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. They're not judging Jesus by their expectations for the kingdom. They're judging their expectations for the kingdom by Jesus and his words. And this is what sets them apart from the other characters in the story so far. And we see other characters in the story. Crowds, religious leaders, all kinds of characters. Mark 4.11, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. And when he says that, it's like saying everything is in gibberish. They don't get it. And this is why Jesus doesn't bother to give the crowd the whole scoop. It's not because he assumed they didn't know or because he forgot his notes or forgot to prepare a sermon. He's actually hardening the outsiders. He's hardening their hearts and ears toward him, which is why he quotes Isaiah to this group of insiders. He speaks in parables for outsiders so that they may indeed see but not perceive, verse 12, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Well, that's an ominous quote. The key is to understand the context of Isaiah and Isaiah's call and ministry. Isaiah was called by God to preach God's word as a prophet to God's people, a people who would not turn and would not listen. And Isaiah's preaching was a form of judgment on them. It was to draw out and expose the extent 
of the hardness of the heart of the hearers. You see? This text is not saying Jesus doesn't preach in order that people who might otherwise turn would turn. No, his ministry is like that of Isaiah's. They will not turn. His preaching is a form of judgment, like Isaiah's. Jesus is available to take questions after his preaching. Those who leave are the kind who don't apparently need to know. And those who stay are the ones who need to know and know it. Jesus is not just sowing the word into soil. He is sifting the soil by means of his word. So some have stayed to ask Jesus about the parable. What did it mean? What did this parable mean? He's not saying the kingdom of God is like farming. Uh, Sorry, he's not saying the kingdom of God is farming like an agrarian kingdom. That would be good news for like five people ever. He's saying the kingdom of God is like farming. And this is how the parable works. It's a teaching story that uses something familiar about things visible to clarify the nature of things invisible. Namely, the kind of kingdom that Jesus brings. Every point in aspect of a parable does not have a connection point with the invisible. But each parable will have several, and each parable will generally have a main point that it's making about the unseen world. So Jesus explains, verse 14, the sower sows the word. The sower is Jesus in his ministry, preaching the word, going from town to town, preaching the word to all who will hear. And by extension, the sowers are all those Jesus sends out with his word, and even us today as we go out with his word. We're sowing right now. The sower sows the word. The word is the word of the gospel, the good news of the Messiah's coming, And all that that means, and it's getting more and more clear over time, even though the fullness of its meaning is veiled here to the disciples. As time unfolds, it will become more and more clear all that is entailed with the coming of the Messiah's kingdom. But the word that Jesus preaches is the word that says, I am the one long promised and I am bringing the kingdom of God and the forgiveness of sins. But the main thing about the parable is definitely... The dirt. Someone asked me, what are you preaching on Sunday? I was, it's going to be a dirty sermon. Figure it out. Okay, those, uh, those who are here to hear the word, those are the, uh, the dirt. The dirt refers to the hearers, to hearers. Jesus is explaining why some people get it and some people don't. They're different people. That's why some people get it and some people don't. The location of the seed determines the fate of of the seed. This is how the kingdom comes. It's not like a firework. And it's here. You can see all of it. It's more like farming. See? That's kind of like how the kingdom is. That's what he's saying. It's like throwing seed. There's different kinds of ground. Sometimes you throw seed and it bounces. And then a bird takes it. And sometimes you throw seed and it takes root kingdom of God is like farming. It's like a seed. And like seeds scattered across different kinds of soil, the kingdom's presence elicits different responses. God grows his kingdom through his word preached, heard, and kept. 
Well, there are four types of earth in Jesus's parable, and now Jesus describes four different types of ears, four different types of ears. And if Jesus ever said anything close to, now if you don't hear anything else I say this morning, hear this. He said it right here, Mark 4, 13. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? This parable is the key to understanding the rest of the parables that Jesus will tell. It's sort of like his philosophy of preaching. Here's my preaching method. Don't miss it or you won't be able to figure out what I'm doing later. Listen. Four types of hearers. Let's give Jesus' word our full attention. The first type of hearer is the hard of hearing. The hard of hearing. Verse 15. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. And when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Hard of hearing is actually too soft. This soil doesn't hear at all. It has no interest in hearing or accepting the word. It hears only to reject the word. We might be thinking right now of ourselves, ourselves at a different time, or or someone that we know, and that would make sense. Jesus is giving his disciples an interpretive key to understanding responses to Jesus, and that key still works. It still explains us and the people around us. But we'll have a clearer and more convicting set of responses ourselves and thoughts if we first get into this into Jesus's mind and into the mind of Mark who put this story in the gospel where he did. Jesus was thinking of real people in his life too who were hard of hearing with respect to the word in his gospel and so was Mark. I often have taken this text and just moved right to my life. I think this will be especially helpful for us. In the first century, the people who fit very nicely into the category of this first soil are the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders who were inspecting Jesus. Here's what that looks like from Mark 2. Remember, Jesus returned home to Capernaum and the crowds heard about it and came and his home was filled. Many were gathered together, Mark says, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they heard, uh, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Well, the Pharisees sure wish they hadn't. Jesus is spreading the seed of the word, and rural Galileans are believing in faith. 
Jesus is preaching the word and these guys are technically hearing it, but it's in one ear and it's out the other. It's not really hearing. In their vision for the kingdom, these guys wouldn't have thrown seed to Levi and his friends or to lepers or the demon-possessed man or to these people coming to Jesus in the night. But Jesus throws seed everywhere. And lo and behold, it's right here on the ears of those most acquainted with the scriptures who should have known to expect a Messiah like this that the ground is the hardest and the seed bounces right off. Neither would these guys have a king who would suffer, by the way, let alone suffer for their sins. They'll incite a crowd of their own, a crowd who will crush Jesus before the story is over. Their hearts are hard and the word bounces right off. Satan takes it as soon as it's preached. It's picked up by birds. Well, since this parable is Jesus's spiritual diagnostics kit, you know, like when you go to the car places and they have that little robot they take out to your car and stick it into your dash and it tells you what the check engine sign is. It's like that. This is Jesus' spiritual diagnostic kit. Four soils inside. So I ask you this. Is this what happens when the seed of God's word is thrown at the soil of your ears? Does it bounce? Do you hear a ding? Ding! It's gone. You hear the sound of birds flocking to pick it up. You not hear anything when the word is preached. Does it annoy you or aggravate you? Do you challenge God in your head? You listen to the word and you think, eh, I don't know about that. I've heard this or that's eh, probably not the case. Or, eh, you just look around and you just don't like anyone in the room. Your mind, is, your mind is other places. Or maybe you're not mad, you just don't care. You know, Pilate didn't care. And he sent Jesus to his death. He didn't care. Rather than mess with the crowd of his own, He'd take care of it with, uh, with the crucifix. Hard ground. Well, if this is you, I'm glad you're here, but please be warned. You're on the wrong side of the king of the universe. And be encouraged at the same time that if this actually troubles you, if you're sitting here listening, you're here. Seed's getting thrown. It may be that God is plowing the soil of your heart. Break it up. Listen. Maybe a seed is finding its way down into a crack. Pray for God to do a work. He opened the ears of the Pharisee of Pharisees, Christian killer apostle Paul. And as long as you are alive, there is seed flying and there is time to receive. But until you receive the seed of the word, Know that you are Satan's feeding ground and the birds are eating it up even as you reject it. There are those who are hard of hearing and there are those second with shallow hearing, with shallow hearing, verses 16 and 17. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who when they hear the word immediately receive it with joy and they have no root in themselves but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Without roots, a plant will not hold up under harsh conditions. And without roots, an apparent Christian will not hold up under the harsh conditions that are promised to those 
who follow Christ. The scorching heat of persecution and tribulation and loss for the sake of Christ exposes rocky soil for what it is. So who is Jesus talking about here? Who does this best describe in the book of Mark? Well, the disciples left their boats and businesses and families to joyfully follow Jesus. They left their families and businesses and boats immediately and with joy to follow Jesus. But is he really talking about them? I think he is. And I need to say, this is a new way for me to read this passage. Personally, I've traditionally thought of these first three soils as describing everyone except Jesus' disciples sitting around Jesus here. But I think it's better to see this parable as a paradigm, not only for people in general, but for responses to Jesus of all kinds, including their own. Jesus is helping his disciples, and by extension, us, to discern the responses and meaning of the responses to the ministry and words of Jesus. And there would be mixed responses even among Jesus' insiders before the resurrection and before the Spirit is sent. And at the cross, there would be no good soil to seed. That should humble us. Jesus does not come because there's good soil to seed. He makes it. So in the context of Mark, I think the second soil helps interpret the responses of the disciples during his life. Just consider where the rest of Mark's gospel goes. Peter will say to Jesus in chapter 14, even though they fall away, I will not. Even though they fall away, I will not fall away. I will hold fast. But when Jesus is arrested, Peter will follow him, but at a distance. And when asked by a slave girl, an anonymous slave girl, if he knows Jesus, he'll say, I don't even know what you're talking about. There couldn't be a human being at that time in the universe to whom it would be easier and less intimidating and less consequential to admit your association with Jesus than an anonymous slave girl as the crucifixion goes on. He'll deny Christ three times just as Jesus told him he would. Even though they fall away, I will not. The rest of the disciples will flee and Jesus will die alone. When they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy and they have no root in themselves but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. The scorching heat of the sun withers Jesus' disciples because they have no root. Well, what does the scorching heat of the sun feel like today? Well, it feels like your head in some places. It feels like your safety in many places. I have friends as missionaries in other countries that I've made over the years with whom you correspond in code. Why? Why? Because if it's found out that they're saying things like Bible or Jesus or God or church, they could be arrested. In our own immediate context, it feels like the transformation of our way of life on account of the word in a way that is new. 
It's the California University System derecognizing InterVarsity Fellowship this past August on all 27 of its campuses because the Christian Student Organization requires that its leaders of the organization hold to certain beliefs. It's Gordon College in the Boston area three weeks ago, an historically and explicitly Christian college, undergoing an accreditation review because of its hiring and community standards with respect to homosexual practice. It's a letter in the mailbox last week to pastors in Houston from the attorneys for the city of Houston and its mayor requiring them to submit, and I quote, all speeches, presentations, or sermons related to an anti-discrimination ordinance, the petition, the mayor, homosexuality, or gender identity prepared by, delivered by, revised by, or approved by you or in your possession. When people freaked out, they backpedaled and said it was a little broad. In other words, since matters of gender and sexuality are political issues, our sermons are subject to state review, apparently. And they could be here in time. And I will never turn over a sermon for the state to evaluate and approve. The mayor of Houston, as uh, things were blowing up in the news, said sermons are fair game. It's two Christian ministers who own an Idaho wedding chapel who were told this past week that they had to either perform same-sex weddings or face jail time and up to $1,000 a day in daily fines if they would not. So the cultural elites and the broader culture by means of the state is saying, deny your beliefs, quit what you're doing, or pay fines and go to jail. It's where this goes and we're getting closer. These, of course, are national headlines. What about the headlines in your life? It's being rejected by your family. It's costs at work and among friends, social and economic costs. You're increasingly going to be the person that goes to that church that believes in that archaic and oppressive and wicked book. It means losing a job or that promotion or that business because you're a Christian. It means being on the outside of the action because you're on the inside with Jesus. And this is just how Christianity is. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to prepare you for the kind of tribulation on account of the word as Jesus prepared his disciples for tribulation on account of the word. It's the sun coming up as it always does. And the sun is hot. So if there are rocks in your soil, it will show in weak roots and withering leaves in time. So get rid of the rocks and take root. I'd imagine churches, good churches, will just thin out as the sun comes up over time. And consider that your soul may be soil, may be rockier than you think. Does the Bible excite you, but only in bursts or only for seasons at a time? You love the word when you're here, you're pumped, but then when you're on campus, you're a mouse. No one would have any idea you're a Christian. It doesn't feel like persecution, but you've made sure no one knows you're a Christian so you won't find out. It doesn't cost you anything. When asked directly if you believe the word of Christ, you wonder if you'd say, I have no idea what you're talking about. So be warned. Whatever consolation you find in your own excitement when you're on site here means nothing if it's not accompanied by endurance 
when there's a cost on the line for believing these things. And at the same time, be encouraged because you're alive. The seed will keep coming and there's yet time to remove the rocks. Remember that the apostle Peter himself was restored to Christ and bore much fruit in time. We have reason to believe that he was crucified upside down for Jesus. That wouldn't feel great, but that's a great place to be. It's a much better place to be than sitting down outside the courtyard as Jesus is crucified, denying to a slave girl that you even know the man. You're safer upside down on a crucifix, and Peter was. Jesus sends his spirit, and the soil of that man's life is transformed. Don't write anyone off, and certainly don't write yourself off. As long as you're alive, there's time. So there's the heart of hearing, there's the shallow hearing, and then there's the divided hearing. Third, the divided hearing. Verse 18 and 19, and others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Now this one is easy. The rich young ruler comes to mind. He asked a great question. Verse 17 of chapter 10. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, sell everything you have and follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. And it says, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Jesus doesn't tell all of us to sell our possessions and give it all to the poor and follow him. But if we believe he's the king and he told us to, if we really are his subjects, we will. And this command for this man was calculated to expose the kind of soil that made up his heart and his ears. He wanted treasure in heaven, but not that bad. Not that bad. The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Or think of Herod. Herod comes to mind. Remember the story of Herod and John the Baptist? This one's ugly. He was interested in what John had to say. Isn't this interesting? Mark 6.20, Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. John's in prison because he's been hollering about Herod's uh, immoral relationship. But Herod likes the guy. He's got him in a cage and he says, talk, talk to me, talk to me. You know, everyone around Herod is probably a yes man. Well, John's no yes man. You know anything about John the Baptist? He's shooting really straight with Herod. I've got something of a, a relationship here where John can speak to him. And Herod hears him with gladness. But when it came down to pleasing his guests or keeping John around... John's head showed up on a platter. He liked his guests more than he liked John's head on John's body. And John can't talk anymore when his head's not on his body. Think about that. He cut off the word from his life in order to please a dancer in front of him and the guests at his party. He liked the word, but not that much. The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things choke out the word. Judas comes to mind. All that time with Jesus, but promised 
money for the Christ, he cashes Jesus in and turns him in. The soil of his heart was filled with the thorns of money and the love of power, and these thorns choked out Jesus' word. The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entered in and choked out the word. The word that he heard from the very mouth of Jesus himself. You don't get a better privileged position than that. The location of the seed determines the fate of the soil. So maybe your soil has some thorns in it, but you haven't recognized them as thorns. If there are things keeping your time and your heart and your attention from Christ and his word, then those thorns have been doing a pretty good job of hiding out among the roses. You know, good things can turn into thorns. You might think, oh, they're good things. I didn't thank God for them. What thorns they are. The word-choking thorns of a job you love that demands more and more and more so that you can't think about anything else. It's crushing you. The word-choking thorns of the approval of your friends at school so that you can hardly imagine admitting you believe something that would put you on their wrong side. The word-choking thorns of shopping and internet and texting or of exercise or food or sports or hobbies or the bottle or whatever it is that addicts your soul and takes your time and takes your heart and takes your attention away from the God of the word and his word. The word-choking thorns of another woman or another man. The word-choking thorns of busyness, being a mom, so busy, being a dad is busy, Being a student, you hear the word the way you'd hear an airline attendant giving those crash instructions. You just got other things on your mind. You're just in the middle of a conversation. Well, if you knew that the plane was going to go down and you needed to use that thing, you'd probably pull out that card as she's invited you to do or he's invited you to do. Real problem is you don't really believe you have a need for the word at all. The world is full of thorns that choke out the word because the world is full of cares and desires that are opposed to the word. Verse 18. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke it out. And it proves unfruitful. So is that you? And by the way, you can't blame it on a thorn, so this is really easy to do. Oh, but the thorn, it makes it so hard to receive the word, to keep the word, to hear the word. This thorn bush is in my way. It's your thorny soil. Okay, Satan takes the word off the pavement, right? The, the path. The path is hard. The sun scorches the plant. Because it doesn't have much root. Because the soil is full of rocks. Jesus is convicting his hearers. It's not his word that's deficient. It's not his kingdom that's deficient. The location of the seed determines the fate of the seed. There's the hardening of their hard hearing. There's shallow hearing. There's divided hearing. And then there's good hearing good hearing but those verse 20 that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30 fold and 60 fold and 100 fold in this case we don't get a description of what the soil is like of course we know what it's not like it's got depth it's not hard we only get 
what the soil produces, lots and lots of fruit. And that's how you know you've got good soil. Soil, it grows things. And those things grow things. It's what it does. This soil grows crops. It's good soil. Hopefully you're not feeling here this morning like you have perfect soil. I suppose some of you could. The Pharisees thought they had perfect soil. You might actually be the path. The sign that your soil is good is that you bear fruit, the fruit of humility in the recognition that you will always be imperfect word receiver and hearer until Christ comes again. The heart of Jesus' message, his word, was a message of forgiveness and a call to repentance. At the heart of being good soil is the recognition that you need God in Jesus and a cross. The tax collectors and sinners had good soil and very little scriptural instruction. They knew they needed Christ. They knew they needed repentance. Good soil receives the verdict of guilty and receives the gift of forgiveness. It's not soil from the hills of heaven. It's soil that believes in heaven, that wants heaven, that trusts Jesus for heaven. And for those of us on this side of the cross, with the New Testament to tell us the whole story, it's soil that knows it needs a cross for heaven. The cross is foolishness, is it not? How stupid is a cross? The most important thing to you is a Roman instrument of torture. That's the most important thing to you if you're a Christian. That's stupid. That's foolish. That's the most important thing to you. If you lose everything else, you can't lose that. Heaven hangs on it. You know you need a cross. It's not perfect soil, it's good soil. It's soil that's hospitable to that message. Last night, my son brought me the Bible and said, Dad, read, as much, read, read a whole lot of this. Read a bunch of chapters. He's been asking for more and more Bible reading at night, which is great. Um, I'll confess, it wears me out. So, uh, uh, like I can't keep going. I think it's, you know, he would have me keep going. So the other night, he, he just flips through it. He opens it up. Read from this side of the page to this side of the page. I don't know where it was, but he went to his bed, and then I turned the page, and I found something I wanted to read. Uh, but last night, he, last night he, uh, he brought me, he opened it up like this, boom, and he stopped in Acts 20, 21, and 22. Paul, under the gun, accounting to the Roman authorities, giving the story of his conversion and persecution. And so we read that. The kids wanted me to keep reading after one chapter and after a second. And then my son said, Dad, yes, son, when we go to Target, we should get the Electricity Spider-Man movie, the one where he takes his hand like this, and then uh, he went on to describe how this Electricity Spider-Man's hand and glove works. And just as I was praying for the soil of my children's heart and thanking God for all this, these requests for more Bible, I get that. See, he's a mixed, he's a mixed bag of soil, right? And... Y'all are mixed bags of soil. But if you are a Christian, if you're a Christian, then on the whole, your soil receives the word. The other soils do not receive the word or bear fruit. Two kinds of soil. The kind where seed die and the kind where seed live. Just two kinds. Just a matter of how it dies and how much it multiplies. It will hold up under the sun. It will take a seed and keep a seed and grow a seed. It'll grow fruit. It'll multiply fruit. When you find a rock, you will work really hard to get it out, even if it's heavy. And it might be there for a while because you're a sinner. 
but you're going to see it. You don't embrace it. You're asking for help with it. Get the rocks out of the soil. When you find a thorn bush, you'll cut it down. It'll hurt. It's not your life. You don't admire that rose. It's lying to you. And it does hurt to take thorn bushes down, especially if we've let them grow up for a while. But they're choking out the word. Take it down. That you want to is a sign that you're a Christian. Get to work. Here's how one commentator put it. The good hearer welcomes the word immediately so that it cannot be snatched away by Satan. The good hearer welcomes it deeply so that it is not watered by persecution, weathered by persecution. The good hearer welcomes it exclusively so that other concerns do not strangle it. And this is why the early church rejoiced in her persecution, because it was a sign that she was following her crucified Christ. And go figure. We follow a Savior who died on a cross for us and calls us to carry our cross. And it's why Paul, a former Pharisee of Pharisees, commended the Thessalonian church, a church born in riots for their conversion. Listen to how the word came to them, how it took, how it held up under affliction, how it multiplied fruit. From his opening paragraph in that letter, he writes, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You received the word in much affliction and with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, 30-fold, 60-fold. Hundredfold. You see it? Wherever you see fruit growing, holding up, and multiplying, you're seeing the work of God. Where you don't, you're seeing the hardness of a man or a woman's heart and the judgment of God that is exposing it for what it is. So, does Christianity work? Of course it works. Just not like we might have expected. And not like the first century religious leaders expected. We wouldn't have guessed, but that's why Jesus gives us this parable. His word is going out and it's going everywhere and it gets every kind of response, sort of like farming. And you have been given a secret of the kingdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We are grateful to you for the word. And it has hit our ears this morning. We have been seated. And what happens now will reflect the nature of the soil of our hearts, the kind of hearer that we are. We thank you that at the cross, we see Jesus dying for bad hearers. And we thank you that you change hard ground. You plow it. You plant seed in it. You save those whom we would never expect to come to you, and that includes us. And we pray that we would bear much fruit for your kingdom and for your glory, 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.